I'm Charlie Taylor. I'm Ben Carter. We need to have a conversation. And I am director of the Fifth Element, where I highlight Fifth Element Hip Hop, which is knowledge, and introducing Big and Digits. else is it like what yeah we need we need to talk about this fucking shit now like, like you, you're taking a piss now like you're just gonna do you're just gonna do like the hottest fucking <laughs> meme that you can put on your phone and just like blast as your fucking intro like, hey man that, look look that guy Zyra shout, shouting me out is not a meme that's not a meme that's hard work that's dedication that's okay all right it's not it's not beat around the bush here all right i feel like this is, this is gonna be a thing like, i'm just saying I mean, I, I reserve the right to, to do it just at random, but uh, I don't think it's going to be regular. This is your show as much as mine. I think top, um, of, the, top but... of the morning is not going to be a regular thing. I just um, I, I think that that's going to get old real quick, but at the moment, <laughs> it's it's what's hot. It's what's hot on Twitter. You know, i got to give the people what they want. They want to hear Kendrick saying top of the morning. <laughs> that's what they want. <laughs> top of the morning, Ben. How's your week been? So this week I got into, I'll start with Baby Keem, the Melodic Blue. Uh, this is actually Baby Keem's third full-length studio album. And I actually think his experience is beginning to show because I think rather than riding on specific waves, he seems to be swimming out ahead of them. You know, I don't think he's necessarily charting new ground, but he's certainly providing some of the most adept music in this lane that we've heard in a long time. Because I think that Playboy Cardi's album disappeared a little too far into its own hubris i liked it but i i feel like baby keem shows a lot of refreshing self-awareness and i think his twitter feed is proof of this he's you know happily sharing memes or even creating them himself and a lot of them are kind of making fun of his lyrical content i think the beats are really great you know they have this lo-fi blurry quality uh, they really they're, they're good beats and uh keem is amply equipped to provide something unique on all of them pink panties is probably the, the pick of the tracks i listened to the first song and I was like, oh man, this, this might be a bit of a hard slog getting through this. But the second song was amazing. Like he, his his flow and his cadence on that was really great. And, and it just keeps getting, I wouldn't say it gets better from there, but it, he certainly keeps that level up. So uh, I think he's just as adept with Kendrick next to him as without him next to him. I, you know, I think Kendrick was just the icing on the cake on this record. I don't think it was necessarily the, the draw card for me. So... I enjoyed that. I'm not sure if I'll go back to it, but I, I definitely enjoyed that listen. Lil Sims sometimes might be introvert. Uh, so Sims, Sims told Enemy that she wants to be known as an artist who makes classic albums. And to that end, the scope of this record is genuinely immense. It's a cinematic experience. Sims is just laying, lay, lacing her stories with uh, emotion and, and intrigue. And it's always, it's almost like I'm, it genuinely is like I'm watching a movie with twists and turns. Like I'm really curious just to see what she's going to say next and what narrative she's going to she's going to tell us. You know, there's things like she almost died. A friend of hers was murdered. Her cousin was stabbed. And again, to Enemy, she said it's like having someone read your diary. And she said her influences for the album were artists like Nina Simone, John Coltrane, Billie Holiday, artists that are really adept at creating entire worlds. I think the production on here is amazing. That's a huge takeaway. 
Uh, she worked with her longtime producer Inflow, who crafted a wonderful mix of throwback R&B tracks and genuine slaps. Genuine slaps. The opening track, amazing. Speed, amazing. Rolling Stone. You know, you can hear her snap into top gear, I think, when she's searching for that cadence that fits and then just hammering it home with a deeply technical display. Just over an hour, but it just never drags this project. And that's the mark of a, of a solid concept structure, I think, that on repeat listens, it keeps you on that Spotify page to the very last song. You know, you just keep, you, it, I, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey. And um, I've listened to it a lot over the last like two weeks, so much. It just, I just keep going back to it. It's, it's, in, it's great in so many settings. Uh, I think it's a really great project. LaRange, uh, The World Is Still Chaos But I Feel Better. This is another album that is masterfully constructed. It oscillates between these distant dystopian worlds like uh, Johan, the upbeat fun numbers like Durban Was a Trap House, and these slow waltzes towards, I guess, better health because, you know, I feel better. Small Towns was an example of that. I think the warmth and the time structure of the samples is something amazing. You know, Delonte needed help, turns that loop into this perfect accomplice through a song that it gives you know what it gives me the image of? Someone in the 1930s breakdancing. Like it's just like it's got this like warm old old school like 20s, 30s, big band, kind of like warm, uh, you know, brass section. But then it's like next to these great, relevant, contemporary drum loops and oh man it's just a great mix instrumentals albums like looped up like this i think can be difficult to sustain over long periods of time unless the beats fucking knock or the samples are on point and i think larange did really well with the samples dug deep into the early 20th century to deliver us something special it's not unexpected of course you know there are a few artists as consistent as him in this space but yeah man he never misses uh second to last khan sunset crest drive uh i remember saying on this pod a while ago that i never understood why royce the five nine didn't blow up because he had every single element that he needed but it never happened for him commercially on the level that i think he deserved and i would say that no one is more equipped in the underground to transition into the mainstream than khan because like name me something he doesn't do with immense skill I think he's amazing. A triple time on Hustle, never felt forced. His emotional tracks hit. Uh, you know, he raps over the top of a sample on one of the songs that sounds a bit like Mask Off by Future, and he sounds incredible on it, you know? It really inventive flow. Amazing album, amazing album. And finally, uh, AZ, Do or Die 2. I didn't think this was ever going to miss. I don't think, I, I can't recall a time when I heard an AZ record and didn't like it. 12 years since his last studio album, he had to return with something that had a bit of ceremony about it especially renaming it or like the you know the next installment after his classic debut record and on here we get alchemist bink buckwild pete rock rock wilder on production zarface heat makers he, he tapped bink for two records i can't recall the last time i heard two bink beats on an album i genuinely i'd have to look that up uh both of them are amazing just for you and bulletproof I think the song with Lil Wayne and Conway is, is really good. I, I, I'm enjoying hearing Lil Wayne on these type of beats. AZ can float on any production. This kind of Griselda-esque sound that he was on that Conway beat, uh, fuck man. that gives. I think that gave me an opportunity to compare him to more contemporary artists and he sounds amazing, you know? He sounds amazing. He's on, on a track with Dave East on here. 
Uh, fuck, man. I've been waiting a long time for this album, and just as with Lloyd Banks, it did not disappoint. I think I'll be going back to this album regularly. So that was me, Charlie. What about yourself? Yeah, so I uh, got into a few. Uh, I would have got into more, but uh, we have changed our recording dates. Mm. <laughs> um, right. So uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I got I got a few in the bank uh, for next week. Um, yeah, but I got into four. Started for friend of five E Breeze. Come through with Never Say Die. Uh, switching up a little bit, going for more melodic elements. I'm seeing those uh, sung hooks there. Something different. Something fresh. Uh, I know he's. I know he probably will listen to this. So I'm just gonna say straight up. Duh, duh. The, the melodies on the hooks, uh, you know, some some are a bit shaky for me, bro. But uh, you know, apart from that, the bars are solid. Can't complain. Uh, but yeah, yeah, work, work on them. Uh, work a bit melodies, boss. Uh, CJ Flyer, not what you're expecting. Um, all in caps. Love the caps. Uh, hour and four minutes. Um, this is interesting. Um, <laughs> I actually like the title because it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, it's very piano led uh it's very um uh, i i guess uh i don't know the, the 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 beats here are not exactly like uh in your face right they're very sitting in the back and he just like it's like he's sitting in a on a stool and he's just like it, it's like it's like dave Chappelle kind of vibes right? i mean you know when, like you see a dave, like recent you know a a a 20 uh this decade, uh, Dave Chappelle, and he's just like sitting on the stool, and he's just like one light on him, he's just like chatting about whatever. It's, it feels like CJ Fly is going for that kind of vibe, and uh, it's interesting. I actually like it. It was very, it's very interesting. Listen, I can't complain about it. So it's a good, it's a good. Uh, it's long, it's long, right? But you know, it's it's some it's a good stuff in there. I think I feel like a lot of people can get some good stuff out of that. But it's just very consistent. I will say that. It's, so if you don't like his like first off, then you probably won't like the rest of it. <clears throat> but um, I I feel like most people would uh, get some sort of enjoyment out of it. Uh, Az double die two. Let me some uh double die in, in general. Uh, but it's good to have the second edition. And uh, yeah, man, these beats are just heavy. Az just floats. Uh, yeah, this is, this is just absolutely banging. Um, there's not even that many features. Um, you know, there's only four of uh, officially. Oh wait, well five um I, I, i'm not a county just elver i'm sorry <coughs> and also t-pain on the bonus but it's a bonus so you know whatever um but yeah man this is it's a real good album real good album 40 minutes or so um you know it comes and goes very very quickly for me as i listen to it um just again the beats and oh my gosh they're so high quality super jazzy i'm here for all of that that is my wheelhouse and uh, yeah, man, AZ just comes through with some real banging quotables and uh, just some real, uh, just some real lyrics, man. Just some real shit. Uh, love it, love it, love it. And uh, lastly, Rita J and Neek, uh, friend of Five E Neek, the High Priestess. Um, so two Chicago artists. Uh, uh, well, I think Rita J is Chicago. Yep, Chicago's outside. So yeah, both Chicago artists. Um, I interviewed Neek a few couple of years ago. Uh, off off the back of his album Undefined, I think if that was if that was the name, if I remember correctly, um, Quezbar, that's it. Oh yeah, he's, he's, he named himself Neek Undefined on the on the on the socials. Why I said it, yeah, but Quezbar, and uh, yeah, he comes through the some uh, uh, production mainly on this one, and uh, Rita J's on the on the on the bars here, and uh, yeah, it's real nice. If you like um you know Star rock kind of kind of thing going on. Uh, if if uh, if it is a good comparison, uh, if you, if you guys haven't listened to Rita J before, I remember listening to her 
uh, album with um, uh, Black Koala, Rashan Ahmad, last year. Really thoroughly enjoyed that. Really close to getting on my album list. I really enjoyed it a lot. And uh, yeah, I, lo- I love this. Is t- I love this too. Um, I love the Neek production. Uh, very soulful uh, and uh, just great uh, topics. Great uh, uh, subject matter. Uh, decent features uh, throughout as well, uh, just to spice things up now and again. Uh, but yeah, man, it's 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 a, it's a real good album, real uh, real solid, uh, real solid project. Just uh, just over thirty eight minutes, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely worth a listen. And with that said, we shall hop into our topic for this episode, which is a retrospective on the legend, the one, the only, uh, that is uh, DJ Shadow. I feel like on the face. Um, a thing, a thing about DJ Shadow is that I, I actually think that he's probably underrated in terms of what he is as an artist and what he's done and his legacy. I feel like we, people in hip hop circles don't talk about it enough. And um, I was kind of, I kind of came into this, uh, you know, in the past uh, week or so of listening, wondering why. But as soon as I, you know, got into it, because <clears throat> before this, before we chose this topic, um, I, the only, the only, out, the only piece of work I listened to of his. You know, obviously spatterings of work throughout, but um, the first full project I listened to was um, Apathetic Age from uh, 2019, I think. And I still have Rocket Fuel with De La Soul in my regular rotation, so, you know. Um, and uh, I remember he did, like, uh, the Silico- some of the Silicon Valley soundtrack, and that was on some of the episodes. I was really enjoying that, really fit. Um, and I feel like it probably inspired him in some way, not maybe to do Apathetic Age, but, you know, just... Um, uh, add on to the I'd, I'd add on to the concept that he had for that, but we'll see. Get to that when we get to that. Um, but yeah, I feel like for for all of the stuff that DJ Shadow has done, uh, from from his own musical palette and his own um and his own discography, uh, I I really feel like people don't talk about him enough. You know, what I mean, in the pantheon of uh, great producers. Um, obviously he's not as you know. Uh, consistent as an alchemist or uh, or as a Mad Lib, um, but you know when it comes to I think well, I mean we I said this off wax to Ben uh, in terms of record collections it's probably DJ Shadow Mad Lib and then everybody else <laughs> according to certain numbers uh, rumored and uh, here and there, um, but you know past that like th- there's a sheer there's a th- there's a there's a real there's a real exploratory nature um, to someone like Shadow, and it happened. And you know, we praise Madlib a lot for that kind of thing. Uh, I remember listening. I remember watching a uh, not watching, uh, reading a uh, article about Madlib. I think in in uh, anticipation for Sound Ancestors, and uh, in it, it was like there was a there was a quote from another publication saying he was like a historian of uh, of music or something like that, and. Uh, you know, I feel like Shadow does that as well. I guess in the feet, in the sampling and what he uses, and uh, especially just when it comes to layering, uh, maybe it's more of a. I guess maybe the legacy is not more of like a, 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 histor- a historian sense. Maybe more from a technical sense, in the same way as like a Grandmaster Flash, right, was really a pioneer at that time, and then Marley Mole, obviously bringing in sampling in general. I feel like DJ Shadow is in that kind of technical pantheon, where, uh, as, we, as we'll definitely talk about with introducing, um, really took sampling to a different level and added layers that, uh, 
you know, next uh, that can be compared to something like um, orchestral music because orchestral music has obviously a lot of elements going on and a lot of layers. Uh, as a personal anecdote to conjoin with that, uh, obviously went to a, a jazz festival recently, not just jazz, but um, I went there for the jazz, um, a festival called Maiden Voyage. And, uh, you know, I listed a lot of jazz artists, um, Alphamist, Moses Boyd, uh, Ashley Henry, uh, amongst others, as I have already told, and um, it was weird because I said to my I said to my boy while while we were there, I I just leaned in I just leaned into him as we were like really fucking jamming to just some real good jazz and was just like, bro, how good is this that you can actually you know uh, you can f- you can focus on one person on the stage and you just hear that you just hear the bass playing or then when you look at the drums you're just focusing on the drums and everything else floods out. I, it's really ethereal that moment. It was really ethereal, and uh, I've always, I've, I've ever since then, I've been trying to like do that more often and trying to, you know, see them layers. And DJ Shadow is a real good challenge if you want to try and do that kind of thing, uh, because that boy layers <laughs> as layers on layers, fucking onion levels. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's just my general thoughts on Shadow. I don't know why I went so long with that, but anyway, uh, what have you got for us uh, in terms of research, babe? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, this one. Uh, I think he's a really fascinating figure. You know, after... I, I've been I've been really interested to do this because I really wanted to find out the narrative. And over his six albums, I think he's really dipped and dived into a lot of different genres without ever really planting his flag. You know, his hip-hop connections seem the deepest. He's collabed with, like, Nas, Ghostface, Raekwon, Dila, Wiki, RTJ, Dave East, Talib, David Banner, E-40, Q-Tip... But I don't think his legacy is rooted in hip-hop. I think it's rooted in bringing trip-hop to the mainstream in America from Britain and his deep technical ability and his sampling. He's actually said to have greatly influenced DJs during the 90s. And I think it's not ironic, but he he considers his early sound to be definitely Bay Area hyphy, which is an homage to the artist that he adored growing up. Whilst the rest of the world is kind of jumping to call him revolutionary in the US. And at the end of every road, he's a sample fiend. You know, one of the greatest proponents of sampling music has ever seen. Um, so this is going to be interesting. The narrative will play out as we get along, but uh, I think it's really interesting. He grew up in California. He told Pitchfork that after his mother left his father, they were living in like random remote parts of North California. Uh, sometimes living in a house for only a couple of weeks. He said they moved 11 times in a two-year period at one stage. He heard the message on his little transistor radio, and then he said this, they played the message, and I had never heard lyrics in a song talking about the reality of life in the street. It was stark and bleak sounding. To me, it sounded like the truth, where everything else I was listening to sounded like an illusion. Um, It sounded like something really important. So he said he grew up, Uh, up until then on classic rock. So this was a pivotal moment. And the next phase of his career or his life was collecting. And Charlie and I spoke off wax about his record collection and we had another word for it, not collection, but I guess it's all in the details. You know, he said from the sixth grade when he started earning money from his paper route, he began collecting comic books, baseball cards, uh, eventually records. And he said, uh, in 1984, I used to have my dad take me down to the music store in San San Jose And I would be like, just come back in like eight hours because what I wanted to do in 1984, remember he was 12 at this stage and 1985 was Egyptian lover shit, synths, drum machines, uh, all those productions, that West Coast like electro craft work shit basically. 
And that was part of me in the same way that Two Live Crew was a part of me, in the same way that Ghetto Boys was a part of me. So he began collecting records and experimenting with his own production at the age of 12. He was deeply influenced by Large Professor and Pete Rock, but honestly, listing all these influences would be like cataloging his vinyl collection, which figures say it's around 560,000 records he has. You know, he actually told Backspin that he'd recently acquired half a million 45s to go with his already 60,000 strong catalog. Um, that's amazing. But I think what's important is to understand what he wanted to achieve in music. He told Backspin, I knew that by doing something different, it was going to cause suspicion because I was a hip hop purist and I didn't like people doing things in 1989 and 1990 that felt like they were just hopping on the bandwagon. It was people like DJ Premier taking risks that made me go, okay, I know what my roots are. I'm not going to scream and be all defensive and try and convince everybody I'm hard. If I want to contribute to this music that I love, I have to be brave enough to just be me and follow my path. I don't want to imitate people. So he began with the $99 Sears home entertainment system. He said I had a turntable, a radio receiver, and a dual cassette deck. Uh, and he discovered that if you held the selector knob between phono and cassette, he could record between the cassettes. Now, anyone out there who knows what I'm talking about right now and the words I'm using, huge shout out to you because I had a system very similar to this in the 90s. And this was, the, you know, I fucking love this system. I had it all the way up until 2010. I loved it so much. But this was all qualified by his background in radio because whilst attending Davis University, he was in charge of a radio show on KDVS, which was the campus channel. And... The obsession that people have with labeling him hip-hop or viewing him entirely through the lens of hip-hop, I think is propelled by two things. Now, the first thing I'm going to talk about now, the second I will get to in due time, I think the first is relevant to bring up right now, DJ Shadow was actually discovered through unsigned hype in the source. Now, he sent a tape into the magazine, and he was included in the column in 1991. It was via Dave Funkenklein that uh, DJ Shadow was able to begin releasing music. So when DJ Shadow sent his music to the unsigned hype office, he also sent a copy to Dave, who was working at the source at the time, and would eventually send, sign him to the label Hollywood Basic. He said he recorded at least 15 albums before his debut, and he was gaining traction and buzz through the remixes he was dropping. He had a project called the Basic Beat Sampler, which remixes uh, Lifers Group, Raw Fusion, Organized Confusion, and this was helping to grow his name in the industry. He also had a connection to the California rapper Paris from his university days. Now, there's a really great interview by Slurg about his early years. And DJ Shadow details his connection with Paris. And I think it's an important side note because Paris blew up in the early 90s with his uh, single and his album, The Devil Made Me Do It. Now, his first video was banned by MTV. And the content on his second album, Sleeping With The Enemy, is allegedly what got him dropped from Tommy Boy because it was so incendiary. Uh, and the and the the album cover as well and the album art. Now DJ Shadow provided production and scratches on that album. And DJ Shadow always gravitated towards artists who were unique and authentic. And I think that connection with Paris makes sense. So at this stage, Shadow is on Hollywood Basic dropping these tapes with remixes. Uh, and then he met James Lavelle. So James Lavelle is the only constant member of the legendary group Uncle, U N K L E, and the co-founder of a record label called Mo Wax which is the label that would release Shadow's debut album. So DJ Shadow told Slug, James Lavelle had heard one of my songs. He often came to LA to do those acid jazz parties. Um, and so basically that's how he met. He James Lavelle heard the music and he liked it. So this is, and this is key. This is key, this next section. Moax was an English label. James Lavelle was English, British, European, right? And Shadow was a Californian artist. 
DJ Shadow was Californian. But DJ Shadow was discontented with the direction that his American label and his admirers wanted him to track. He claimed they wanted him to loop up really popular samples and go in the funk direction, which is totally understandable considering G-Funk was absolutely ubiquitous at the time. You know, it was dominating the musical landscape. But Shadow kept his foot on both sides of the pond via the Soul Sides label and collective. So he released his music, his US-focused music, through Soul Sides and he appeased his fans over there, and then he pursued, you know, a different sound in the UK, and Cut Chemist of Jurassic 5 was a huge admirer of Shadow's work, and they actually dropped numerous collab albums throughout their career, so Soul Sides was running things in North Carolina with DJ Shadow, they had Lyrics Born, Black Alicious as the flagship artist, this was like a, a loose collective of artists, um, and all of the members actually met via the radio station KDVS, which I mentioned earlier. And this was Shadow's hip-hop roots taking force. And this is why introducing is such an iconic and unique piece of music. Because whilst he was hanging out in his collective of producers and MCs in California, he was performing in Europe and releasing these maxi singles. And this was the wave in the UK at the time, all the way up until the streaming era. You know, electronic acts out of Manchester and Birmingham and Bristol, they were dropping two or three songs at a time. And, you know, they were getting played at raves and parties. It's a completely different scene. And DJ Shadow was entrenched in both. And so underpinning all of this was the sampling. Whether he was remixing well-known tracks or looking through crates to produce hip-hop breaks beats his love was in the sampling and it was his deal with mo wax that eventually bore fruit in terms of an album and then we get introducing i just wanted to say all that um because it's very key i think this idea of dj shadow was being seen as a hip-hop artist if you go through his discography i would say subjectively like 30 to 40 percent of it is hip-hop maybe 30 percent the rest is all over the place mm. you know and that's why i'm very curious this, this whole thing of him just being a hip-hop producer, I don't think he is. I think he's very diverse and he's all across. And I, yeah, I find it, I, I find that as an interesting narrative as it runs through his career. And I'll, I'll make a point with introducing um, when we get into it. But yeah, that's, that's his origin story. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me personally, the UK element uh, was very fascinating to me uh, thinking about. And, and now that you've added the element of, it was kind of, it was kind of, not why he dropped via UK label, more of why he didn't drop via US label. Uh, and just uh, how I think they saw what he wanted to do, if that makes any sense. Mm. What they want, yeah, what they wanted him to do. And uh, I think I feel like he, you know, he's too. I guess uh, free spirited in that fashion to do so, and that's and that's and that's a that's a that's scary if you think about it. Um, you know, there's I don't think there's many. I always find it fascinating when there's someone who literally just you know uproots themselves and goes somewhere else in that in that way, uh, especially creatively. Uh, there's a couple of artists I've spoken to before, like they've come either here from somewhere else or have gone somewhere else uh via somewhere else uh, gone to a certain place via another place and it always it always fascinates me like i talked to a um i talked to an artist um called tony t a couple of years ago and he's a he's he's southern as shit like <laughs> you listen to him and he's southern as shit right but he lives in he lives in the netherlands and he started off like I think uh, doing shows in like New Zealand or some shit, 
or Australia, I forget which. And now he resides in the Netherlands and kind of just exclusively does work in the Netherlands. Mm. Um, and it's it's just fascinating um, on that on that front. And he he's more permanent, I feel, than someone like Shadow. But it, but it's, it is interesting thinking about how somebody would just creatively just uh, take their shit and literally move somewhere else. But considering the background that you already put, he's not exactly uh, against uh, moving somewhere. Um, kind of, it's it's a very nomadic story. Which is uh, very fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. We'll get to introducing um, the wild. The wild thing about this record is it's, it's not only a classic in Britain, but it's considered hugely pivotal and highly influential in the US. In a different way to how hip hop artists were influencing the British scene. You know, we've heard Rodney P talk about the way British MCs in the eighties and early nineties used to rap with American accents because New York was so influential in Britain in the, in those times. But introducing was actually seen as both British and American. Both in different ways. And I find that really fascinating. So on the British side, uh, DJ Shadow had dropped influx. Uh, and Lost and Found in 1993 and 94, both of which exploded him into the collective consciousness uh, through a lot of glowing reviews. And the key is right here. If you don't hear anything in this episode, hear this. Trip-hop, the, the, the genre, the term, was coined by Andy Pemberton in Mix Mag in 94, and the term was used to describe DJ Shadow's uh, 12-inch In Flux, which is DJ Shadow's single. You know, DJ Shadow was the very first artist in, hip- in history to be termed trip-hop. Now, listeners may, you know, you might not be familiar with trip hop. It kind of bears more resemblance. I know it has trip hop in it, but it bears more resemblance <laughs> to electronica than it does rap. It's a product yeah, of yeah. Bristol. It's like a down tempo mix of funk, dub, soul, psychedelica, R&B, house, and hip hop in there. You know, Tricky is an artist that you're probably familiar with. Massive Attack, Portishead. Uh, Portishead are widely regarded as the act who propelled it into the mainstream because their debut album, Dummy, which came out in 94, won the Mercury Prize in 1995. And as a lover mm-hmm. of trip hop, I would certainly say introducing incorporates elements of it. You know, building steam with a grain of salt is pure trip hop. It has that dreamy days, down tempo feel mm. matched to that mm. ethereal piano loop. But the next track is the number song, which heavily incorporates elements of early commercial rap, notably Def Jam's love of rock that permeated LL Cool J and Beastie Boys in their early career. That song samples Metallica. And that's a hip-hop. I feel like that's a hip-hop song. So Shadow's goal with this record was to create an entirely sample-based project. He had three pieces of equipment. He had a sampler, a turntable, and a tape recorder. Now, the MPC-60 sampler was the key part of that. DJ Stretch Armstrong told him to buy it in 92, and he created almost the entire album using it. And a key element of the album was the collection process. He said that he spent at least two hours a day at Rare Records, in uh, I think it was in Sacramento, rummaging through crates searching for samples that's how the iconic cover art was created you know it was just a photo that was taken while it was in there and in true british and bristol fashion dj shadow said he was really depressed during the recording process and this angst and pain came out through the music and what i find fascinating about this album is the legacy is so mixed and muddled when he went on Sway, uh, Sway said that he was a pioneer in bringing trip-hop to the united states but he also said that uh, DJ Shadow revolutionized the way people were DJing in the 90s. And DJ Shadow seemed slightly uncomfortable with this. And he actually said immediately, he didn't even acknowledge that really. He just said, I was imitating Curtis Mantronic. And then he starts rattling off his list of influences. And Mantronic is someone that Shadow references constantly. Curtis Mantronic was born in 1965 and he began releasing music in the mid 1980s. 
And this is one aspect of introducing, but I wouldn't say it's the only element, you know. I think there's little doubt now that the album is propelled by people in the present, pointing to it as an influential and classic record. And it was, of course, critically acclaimed, but I think there are more enduring elements. Guinness Book of World Records claimed that it was the first album to be created entirely from samples. That's not true because we've actually spoken about uh, John Oswald on this podcast. Uh, he created an album called Plunder. He created the genre Plunderphonics and he dropped an album oh, in 19... 19- oh, you got it? You had that? <sighs> no, but I just wanted to talk about how fucking funny the word Plunderphonics is. <laughs> Plunderphonics is a weird verb. But, it's you know... A great, that- it's a great term. You know, introducing is probably the the biggest album at the time in that genre, in Plunderphonics <laughs> genre. And it, it inspired Radiohead to create OK Computer. You know, they would go on to drop Kid A, which is one of the greatest records of all time, which wouldn't have existed <laughs> without OK Computer. But I, I'm interested in, like, what the enduring legacy of introducing is because I think it's whatever you want it to be almost. You know, in, a, in an interview with The Quietest on the 20th anniversary, Shadow said... If 20 or 30 years down the road when everything's said or done, I was never able to achieve that level of zeitgeist again, then so be it. And I think the word zeitgeist is key because if you look at the landscape, 94 was a tidal wave of change in hip-hop. You know, Biggie and Nas dropped. 92 was a tidal wave with G-Funk. 93, we got Doggy Style. So introducing was really fucking unexpected because with the other leaps in in sound in the genre prior to that, they were telegraphed. You know, socially conscious hip-hop had been a thing for a decade when the native tongues blew up. G-Funk had been bubbling away for four years before the chronic. Rakim and Slick Rick laid the lyrical groundwork for Illmatic and Ready to Die. But introducing was new to the US, despite trip-hop being a thing a few years prior in Britain. But no one could foresee that Shadow would marry it with hip-hop sampling and create something that actually straddled a lot of genres and, and spawned so many superlatives and, and zeitgeist is like they, they call it the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time and I think introducing was much less the figurehead of a movement and not even the creator of one it was it was separate it just it existed separate it, it brought together multiple elements and put them out in this perfect package it wasn't like a it, it wasn't a sound that could be imitated easily. And I think, you know, DJs, rappers, electronic producers, alt rock bands, everyone took something different from this album. And I think to me, that's the enduring legacy, the diversity of sound and influence. I don't think a lot of people have managed that. And I think it's really interesting that this album actually blew up the way it did because it could have just been lost. You know, it could have been lost and, and no one yep. would have found it. It could have just been in a record yep. store somewhere. There's plenty of albums like that. You know, we yep. get on here yep. every week and we talk about all these huge moments in hip-hop history that have almost been forgotten. But there's, I've, I've done this. There's so many albums and sounds that just got lost for decades and no one ever finds them. And so I find it fascinating that it blew up. But um, yeah, it's an interesting album. Yeah, and we also, you know, uh, as uh, you know, when we talk about our weekly stuff that we listen to, sometimes I feel when I talk about a certain album, or whatever, <clears throat> I wonder if I ever, I, I if I'm ever gonna hear about it again. Mm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, there's so there's so many of those sometimes where I'll just go, damn, was the, I don't know if I'm gonna listen to it again. Like, and that's fine, but I, I just wonder, like, how, where's it gonna sit? Is it gonna sit anywhere? Does it have a seat anywhere? But mm. anyway. Um, I feel like you've uh, encapsulated this very well, um, so I won't go too much from my thoughts on it. Um, but 
what I will say is this in- I find it interesting that it uh, reached uh, number one on the UK dance album charts, which uh, <laughs> I feel like is uh, kind of why I don't fuck with charts in general, because like, I'm not dancing to anything, so I'm just going to keep real with you. I'm just going to keep real with you. I find this very hard to dance to. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just, I just saw that little factoid and I found it funny because they're, they're not going to put it anywhere else. Like they, they have nothing else to put this kind of album anywhere. Um, like uh, yeah, so it, and that kind of uh, talks about. I, I, I think that references is um, the conversation we've had several times about you know just labels and genres and is there any point of them? Um, in this case, probably no point. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I do, I do, I do echo your sentiments on just like uh, this easily just could have, because I feel like there, there's probably a lot of albums like this, in not in terms of like um, uh, legacy or whatever, but just in terms of composition and what it is. Uh, I think in hip hop circles, I feel this and the rest of Shadows work, which we'll get into uh, in due time, um, have given a lot of producers if they want to. Um, license to just, 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 just throw, just throw some shit at the wall, man. Um, and the fact that it's in '96, and I think this, I think I want, I'll make this my main point. Um, because we we obviously regularly um uh, reference like what year it dropped and what was going on then, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't, th- I don't think we've ever had something um as far away as from what was going on then uh i'll I'll word that differently because i feel i butchered that word i don't think we have had an album that is placed in a certain year that that is so different from what was going on in the in, in the charts or the mainstream so to speak or what we constantly talk about as it pertains to hip hop history um, nobody reference. <laughs> I think people reference introducing uh, as like uh, you know some of the best '96 hip hop albums. They have like 20 others, 30 others to name before they even get to it. You know what I mean? Um, and that is what it is. But it is worth just mentioning that and uh, asking why. Um, but yeah, I, I it remind, this reminds me of a convers not a conversation, but like a. I remember I talked to Jamie Branch, uh, who did that amazing Antelope project a couple of years ago for me, uh, from, uh, when I listened to it, and it was very of this nature, right, it was very trip-hoppy, um, but it had jazz elements, it was, you know, full-on electronic, and it was just fucking a, mish- a mishmash of just, just crazy creative, like, it was, it was like a creative brain burst, right, and uh, she hit me back on DM, uh, saying like, you know, thanks for listening. And I was just like, <laughs> uh, she quoted, she quoted what I said on the sh- on the episodes, and I don't class what we do as reviews. So let's just, it was just really odd <laughs> with her taking my words, and I, was, I just didn't really word it properly. Uh, but she just echoed it on Twitter, and it was just funny. But she DM saying thanks, and I, and uh, she, I, I referenced that, you know, when it comes to something like jazz, for example, um, a lot of people just, you know, think. Oh, you know, saxophones, trumpets, but bro, it's so, there's so many, to, there's so much more to jazz, right, as it pertains to that. And she kind of praised me for that, um, as I think she's a trumpeter herself and a vocalist herself. Um, so she knows that kind of, she knows she's probably seen seen that kind of spiel um, uh, put across. And I feel like for Shadow, it's the same way 
where you know obviously we label it trip hop um and like you said 30 percent of it is probably you know what we what we usually reference as quote-unquote hip-hop right but (coughs) we shouldn't let that get in the way of the rest of the creative outburst that has happened in this particular album and how uh just again i keep saying layered but really how layered it is is so absurdly layered um there's so much going on it's kind of relentless as a listen to me personally and uh you know some people can get very um some people can get very deterred by that and i understand is it is it can be exhausting if you don't if you don't have the energy for it um you need to like you know build up the energy saying okay i'm gonna listen to introducing and uh you know (laughs) you know prepare for that um but yeah man it's uh, it's yeah i i can be sending from previously but I just, I just wanted to throw that element in, um, in terms of just like how we see things, um, uh, especially from a hip hop perspective. And uh, the, uh, uh, you know, we, we're about forty minutes into this episode, so <laughs> let's move swiftly on. But it is worth mentioning just like how uh, interesting of a topic this is, as a, a, a intre- interesting as a re- retrospective this is, because it's not just hip hop, like full on what we believe it to be is so much more than that and you know a lot of people can get very uh, you know crane their neck in about it you know what i mean turtle turtleneck it but i feel like if you really you know just throw yourself in here if you haven't listened to someone like dj shadow it sounds like i'm finishing the episode but if you haven't just just try introducing just try it once i can understand for some people why it would, why it would be on the face very scary but it, it it helps. I think it helps in terms of just like widening the palette. It really does help. It's not the most extreme, but it, it's a good place to start. Yeah, we're gonna get into that later. Like I I do want to look back at that in a you know as we get on because the next few albums are just not really hip hop. So we get to the private press. No. <laughs> o two. You know this looks like a huge leap of time ninety six to o two. But DJ Shadow was not dormant. He did a lot of stuff. I'm not going to go through all of it, but he did a lot of stuff in between. Uh, when the private press dropped, it was a curiosity. You know he'd he'd influenced a lot of people, and instead of doing the normal major label, and he was major label this time, uh, instead of doing that thing of backing the album up with something designed to capitalize off the zeitgeist that he had rode, he left it until o two. And this album charted at 44 in the Billboard 200, which is massive considering his debut album didn't chart at all. Number eight on the UK album chart, his only top 10 foray. Uh, he told Ill Music, I didn't know how much I could really say with samples this time. And I didn't know if I had a whole other album in me. It was just lack of confidence in the beginning. Within a few weeks, I knew it was actually been more challenging for me to try and stick with my original ethos on this record. So his original ethos was he wanted to get session players in and and like actually do uh, create original music. I know he creates original music, but you know like create new music and have them play yep. on the record. Uh, but he yep. said that the opening track is is a song that best encapsulates what he tried to do on this record. He said I didn't want to resort to my usual tricks. 
There's no fancy drum programming. I don't want to rely on a similar sample coming back throughout the whole thing to keep the song moving. It keeps going in all these different directions, yet it feels like a whole song. You need a lot of samples to be able to have a song like that. So thousands of records went into this album, even if they aren't represented. Rather than get session musicians in, he challenged himself to create something entirely sample-based. He said he used post-it notes to keep track of the samples and the records. So he'd listen to a record, then write a post-it note about it. He said the album is heavily influenced by the Bomb Squad. He used a similar setup to the way that they produced for Public Enemy. He was pulling 16-hour days on this record. You know, and he said the anxiety and self-doubt from the introducing days crept back in, but rather than express it through music, he actually said that he focused on the process and the objective angle of the music rather than the emotional angle. And, you know, remember that underpinning all of this is the desire to be unique and different. And DJ Shadow's constant refrain about his art and creative process is to be yourself and do not copy. I was watching an interview where he was talking about contemporary hip-hop and he says he loves basically all music, regardless of whether it's mumble rap or boom bap or whatever, golden era. The thing he said he struggles with is repetition. He said every era of hip hop has bored him at some stage when it's become oversaturated, not because the music isn't good, but because it's rote. And clearly the time and energy and attention to detail he puts into the private press pays off because I think that six days is a beautiful triumph. That stunning Colonel Bagshot yeah. sample, which is... Backdrop yeah. some harrowing movie and TV show scenes. Like it's a mm. it's an iconic sample, but he gives it this unstoppable movement. I don't think anyone ever has. Monosyllabic begins to incorporate that rapid tempo glitch and drum and bass sound that was thumping out in raves in the nineties. Giving up the ghost feels like driving through a deserted city at three AM zonked on fucking I don't know, something, <laughs> ketamine or some shit. You know, the album was well received that has a ninety one a Metacritic, but yeah, this this album, this is not what I expected at all. You know what I did when I was listening to these? So I first started listening to the... I haven't listened to DJ Shadow's albums except introducing in my life. And when I was listening to them, I was doing other things. I had to keep double-checking that these were actually his albums because I was like, wait, what? Like, what the fuck is this? I thought it might be like someone had hijacked his Spotify page. You know how that happens sometimes and there's like fake albums Shit. put on people's... Shit. I thought there were two DJ Shadows and like one of them was like this alt rock instrumental rock yeah group. it was weird man and the yeah. private press was like all over the place bro. i did not expect this it's <laughs> weird yeah bro bro the the rock elements in this is fucking crazy i forgot what song it was it might be walkie talkie I'm, I'm not sure i won't, I won't, I won't say this for sure but it's just this one bit where like it's just this these, these fucking this is big ass guitar riff just ripping through it and it's just like what the fuck I was just like, bro, I think I messaged you while I was listening to this. I was just like, bro, this is, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, yes. like, this is a rock album, basically, nearly. Yeah. Like, the mashing, the mashing, uh, the motorway songs, mashing on the motorway and blood on the motorway. Like, and they're like 11 minutes total. Like, are just absolute trips for me. Like, th- those are crazy. Um, like, uh, uh, also, Right Thing, uh, GDMFSOB, like, those are just... Those two just mashed together are just absolutely just mind blowing for me, and obviously the uh, aforementioned six days is a uh, a classic in a lot of ways. But fuck yeah, I I I actually really um like once I got over the shock of the album of like just uh how uh it was weird because I didn't I could I couldn't really judge if I was enjoying it right while I was listening to it, but as soon as it finished, I was like I fucking enjoyed that. <laughs> 
you know what I mean? It was so crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Listen, I uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great project. Then we get to the outsider. Um, so in an interview, Shadow said that this album was close to what he wanted to achieve with his work as possible in a much more overt way. He said, notably putting uh, like Keek the Sneak and David Banner next to a song with Kasabian was designed to introduce groups of, the groups of fans to one another. Uh, but then he said this began to become a point of contention and in late, his later career, he would turn it into an inflammatory technique. But at first he was trying to introduce because he was actually saying that he had like really discordant fans. Like he, he had genuine, like straight up hip hop fans. And then he had like alt rock, like electronica, you know, all that glitchy drum and bass fans. And I think this, this album's really divisive, right? And I do think it was the hip hop element that pissed people off. And this is where I think introducing became, this is where I actually do think the outsider is where introducing became known as a hip hop album. And I say all this in hindsight, I wasn't around at the time. I don't know what it was like at the time, but when I read the reviews for introducing, a lot of it was, yeah, there were hip hop elements. They were talking about how there were hip hop elements, but they were saying how he brought hip hop elements to electronica rather than he brought electronica to hip-hop and if you look at the the outlets who reviewed introducing alternative press the guardian enemy pitchfork rolling stone and spin there was no vibe there was no the source uh i know double xl mm. pre premiered in in august 97 um but there was no double xl they they did retrospective reviews and they reviewed reasonable doubt for example and numerous other early records but they did not review introducing and you know, this rep, so I thought that, I could be wrong on that, but that's just my thought. Um, and it was interesting. This this album is interesting. He says about the title, oh no, he's, yeah, he says about the title, uh, I thought it was a clever title. I thought it was an evocative title. It didn't really mean anything particularly, but I just thought it sounded good. But I think people who don't listen to rap who got into my records saw it as, oh, he doesn't like rap and he doesn't like rap now. So, you know, I thought that was interesting as well. Um, he always he says, I always had this vision about getting airplay simultaneously on as many different kinds of stations in as many formats as possible. And just like you said, I want the outsider to challenge people's perceptions of what an album is supposed to be because it's a mixtape world, it's an iTunes world. So the idea of doing a whole album of songs in this one format just so it can be marketed to this one audience is to me really depressing. And I think this was an expression of the isolation he felt in terms of genres, you know, as I said, I don't believe he thought he was embraced by the hip hop scene after introducing. And I think partly it could be the song title on introducing, which was, I think rap sucks in 96, or this is why hip hop sucks in 96. There was a yeah, song on yeah, introducing yeah. and he caught that constantly gets brought up. Um, but yeah, like 45 man, five seconds. Yeah, I know. But like, it's, it's really quite inflammatory. If you think about it in 96, yeah. like hip hop did not suck in 1996. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. so, he, you know, and he's, he he brings up rappers often in interviews. He says, um, you know, when he was asked by Backspin about them, he says he adores rappers. He felt rappers were poets and essential voices. And I think that out, the outsider is his attempt to pull himself back into the hip hop conversation. And I think this is the album that started him being interviewed heavily by hip hop outlets and being seen in part as a hip hop artist. I don't think it came before this album. I feel like uh, you 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 don't know it, but you're but what you're saying is like really forcing me to look at this album differently from what I saw it as before when I was listening to it and after I listened to it. Um, I'll, I'll say what what I thought when I listened to it is that I didn't enjoy it in a lot of ways because 
Uh, I wasn't really into the first lump of tracks where they had this, like, uh, you know, very, very southern elements to them. Um, and uh, considering it was dropped in uh, 06, not my steez, as you guys know, 2000s, not my steez most of the time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, just it was like electro southern and it was just like everything bad about both. I was just like, eh. and then it got to like seeing things with David Banner and that was actually kind of enjoyable. But then like with the two, they had like two instrumentals, Broken Levy Blues, Artifact. And that kind of changed, changed the shit, changed the vibe a bit. And then came Backstage Girl, which I really enjoyed with Fonte. Um, and <laughs> there was a, you know, it was 06 when uh, this uh, very dated reference of, uh, he, I think he said, it shouldn't be fucking with this girl on MySpace. I was just like, whoa, that's mm-hmm. dated. <laughs> but fair enough, bro. It is what it is. Can't, can't, can't see the future. Um, but yeah, that was just absolutely funny to hear that bar. Um, but yeah, that was cool, right? I was like, okay, I'm I'm getting into it now. I'm like, you know, it's, it's getting somewhere. And then it hit me with like this, uh, like uh, the tiger and raise you. Then what have I done? Then you made it. And I was just like, why is this suddenly turned into like I don't know, like an I don't know, like a acoustic electro sad boy. I don't know, kind of thing going on. Don't know. I I can't explain it. And then you have, and then you just go back to the 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 Q-tip Latif, and then E40. I'm just like, what the fuck is go- what, what are we doing here? Like that, that's, I was, I was, it kind of, it just really jarred me. Like there was a lot of things because it wasn't like, um, because saying the shadow is too uh uh back and forth is just like kind of stupid to say because most of the work goes everywhere. Right, but this just like focuses on several things for a certain amount of time, where I get comfortable. That's that's the, that was the point. That was, I think that was my point. Uh, uh, that it just it, it, there's too many moments where like I get comfortable with a certain sound, and then he just fucking pulls a hard right, and I'm just like fuck, and I just get whiplash, and then like it pulls left again, and I just get another bit of whiplash, and then another bit of whiplash. And I'm just like bro, stop turning. Like, just stop turning on me, bro. My neck's broke. Like, you hit me with five Gs here. Like, I'm not Lewis Hamilton, okay? Calm down. Um, But what you just said is kind of changing my mood on it, right? Because you you can can easily... From what you said, from what I'm getting, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he kind of did that in a response to what was going on at the time. And I feel like uh, we're going to mention our pathetic age, which I think re- makes a definite response to something about around that time as well. So it's not going to be the first time that he's done it. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be the, the only time that he's done this. And while I still don't like the album, I can see where he's coming from from what you said. Um, so I'll give him respect on that front. But uh, just as a... As just as a listen, I yeah, I, yeah, my my neck my neck snapped. It it it, it pulled it pulled off. Uh, so many uh, uh genre elements. It just really, <laughs> really made my neck hurt. You know what's really interesting, and I could be wrong again. You know, I don't know his full intent, but it's almost like when he started in his first couple of albums, this was an experimental thing to have all these different genres and these different sounds mixing together. And it's almost like he started wielding them as a weapon as he went through his career. 
like mm-hmm. to create yep. narratives or to like tell stories. Yep. Um, yep. So yep. we get into the next one. The less you know, the better. Uh, you know, the title is true. Ignorance is bliss. But uh, you get a, another left turn on this album. Uh, Talib Kweli pops up here, but I think he's the only rapper featured on this one. And uh, he dealt with... as well. Okay, yeah, there's no... But he dealt with heavy clearance problems. Uh, so, you know, clearance issues. And he's actually regularly chastised sample clearance and the prohibitive price. He said it's an expression of a kind of capitalist world, you know. Okay, um, yeah. So he said of this record, he said, I feel that a good record for me never defines 2011. It should be timeless and be able to live in any era. I think I've done that with this one. It's different at times, but I don't think it's a huge departure from anything I've ever done. And I think my fans who have been there since introducing will like this one. Now, the theme of the album, I think it attracts what he meant to do for The Outsider, which he actually said about The Outsider. It was heading in a more political direction, but he decided it wasn't necessarily the sound or message he wanted to do a whole album on with The Outsider. But with this one... Yeah, clearly. Clearly. But with this one, he said, he said, any good album title has multiple meanings, and I feel like choosing titles where I find myself repeating it almost like a mantra. But this one's partly about being stuck overnight at some airport terminal in Dallas and having CNN and Fox blasting my brain out for no apparent reason. I just sit there and say, who asked for this? And he cited also the aggressive marketing technology of the time as an inspiration. And this is timeless because 10 years later, it's way worse. It's way, way worse than it was in 2011. And he said, and this is like a very anti-technology. He said, the internet has been sold to us as a savior. But DJ Shadow said he himself had been decimated by it. And he says, the internet was supposed to democratize, democratize communication, but the opposite seems to have happened. And... I find that fascinating. I think his innate ability to find catchy samples is all over the record. He lifts that guitar rift from uh, Lover by Bethlehem from 1978. And that song sounds eerily similar to Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. And actually Tribute by Tenacious D. Very random. Very random. I don't know how the fuck he did that. Uh, There's a lot of influence, I feel, from the Avalanches and even Girl Talk on this record. Because I think the samples, you get a lot more lyrical vocals from the sample. You know, I'm Sad and Lonely by Susan Reed, uh, Spectrum's Do the Crab from 1971, On the Beach at Cambridge by uh, Adrian Mitchell from 1984, which is a spoken word record. I personally think this is his weakest album. I think it's because he's less Ooh. focused on, um, I think, you know, I think he's focused on pissing people off, but doing it by marrying discordant elements. And he seems f- trying to capture dissociation um, which I think he'd already done on introducing. I think he'd already done it. You know, I think he'd the 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 mood that he was trying to encapsulate on this record, this kind of dissociated from the world and and feeling low and and almost nihilistic, uh, and not even nihilistic from an internal sense, but nihilistic from just the the situation and the circumstances of of living in the world. I think he did it better on introducing, and I I didn't find that he did it very well on this record it's my least favorite record from him yeah i can i can see that i can i can okay i i I definitely see why you think that and uh i tend to i I, i'd say it's above the outsider for me but um it's just right there um on the bottom rung um in terms of uh, just general listening it is very bleak it's it's very um yeah, it, it does get a bit. Uh, uh, I think uh, it, it runs. It runs you down emotionally. I feel uh, something like uh, it, it, when I got to I got a rock. I was just like, Ugh, 
uh, yeah, just that track in particular really jarred me. Um, sad and lonely and not so sad and lonely are just really fucking bleak mm. and just really um, and yeah they're all like definite anchors uh, uh, in their in their respective uh, uh, placements and on the track list um, and and even like the scale it back featuring little dragons really really popular in terms of, like uh, listening numbers massive and uh, I, yeah and and like I have a really love hate relationship with like little dragon like every time I see him on a feature I don't really know if I'm gonna like it or not sometimes I really do sometimes I really don't um, and I'm kind of in the middle with that track. Uh, in terms of just what it is, um, but yeah, like the, the yeah overall, just uh, the uh, yeah, stay the course with Talib and Pulse is great. Um, I do like that track, and it really, and as someone that again with two, I keep I don't know why I keep Method Pathetic Age like it's so important, but just it's it's the only flashpoint I have personally. Um, but uh, you know, going back going to that quickly, uh, there's a whole obviously side of it where it's just like you know full on features, and this was like the first taste of it. Uh, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, outside the outsider, and I was just like, okay, that that's what that's it, that's it, that that's what I want, right? And I don't know if I'm like an instrumental pleb saying that, like I'm just saying I need lyrics, right? <laughs> <laughs> I need oh, lyrics, man. No, I need Charlie, lyrics. I can't no. just have the instrumental. I'm not that. I'm trying not to be that guy, okay. right? But this that's the best track for me on this album. So I don't know what that says. You know what I mean? So. Psh- shit like I don't, I don't say that i'm not i'm trying not to i may be an instrumental pleb um i mean compared to what ben just said saying who reminds him of, reminds him of like they that's just they're right that's that there you go like i, I don't get i don't go like hmm, yeah i get i get elements of this uh you know uh, uh post um uh post-punk uh, rock band from the <laughs> 70s you know I, mean? I can't do that i can't do that that's that's not my steez unfortunately uh, I can't do that. Uh, so you know, I have to stay. I have to be admitting, uh, be admitting to that that I'm just very uneducated on some of the, on some of the uh, elements uh, on this album in particular. But I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not emotionally unintelligent, and uh, it is very fucking bleak. So I'll just say that. But that's the thing. That's the key part of this whole thing. Like uh, DJ Shadow said that, you know. Like you, you pitched me this this episode, and or well, didn't pitch me, but you gave it as a like an option. And I, I, I gave you a list of like eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, I kind of wish I didn't because I was like, fuck. <laughs> but it was it was on your mind, and this is exactly what DJ Shadow said. Because you know, like, I, I guess I would be a little bit in the minority that I listen heavily to hip hop and like ambient electronic art and glitch and all this shit. But like he says, you know, he, this is part of his whole career is you know bringing people from different elements and different different genres into his space and i find that and then we'll get to it with the with apathetic age but um which i like the apathetic apathetic yeah i like that anyway uh the mountain will fall so i found some of his words interesting about this album he told complex and i'll talk about that in a second the fact that he was even being interviewed by complex to last you have to be able to embrace both the business and the artistic side i hate to sit here and say well i'm running a business but when you consider the machine and all the different people working with and for you that machine has to be fed and those people have expectations then you have actual real world costs associated with the work you do so i find that really interesting like we always talk about these artists like and we're like i wonder where they went for x amount of years you know, this guy probably working incredibly hard to make a living. These albums aren't like selling the, the house down. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, I think that this album, 
again, it's another left term. Uh, the RTJ track, Nobody Speak, which is likely one of their most famous songs, I would say. And in Australia, man, that guitar intro, I swear, was played incessantly on every fucking Mazda 121 tape deck in inner Sydney <laughs> all the time. And I know that because it's exactly who I was dating at the time. Exclusively girls living in Marrickville, <laughs> living in their fucking Mazda 121s. Just always... Two, pe- two listeners can relate to this, I guarantee it. Like, oh, just only two, maybe, like, at, at best. Everyone right. else, pew, straight over the head. I'm like, do you guys know about, like, Cancer for Cure? And they're like, what? I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, we got a Killer Mike fan in the car. Nah, nah, we got a Triple J fan in the car. But anyway, I'm, I'm so fascinated with this hip-hop connection because that song is fire on all levels, but Complex dropping in for an interview. And as I said earlier, I would say subjectively up till this point, 30 to 40% hip-hop, maybe 30, I would say 30%, maybe even less than that up until this point you know the rest is super eclectic rock influence ambient stretches there's a lot of post a lot of post rock on here a lot of instrumental rock and post rock and instrumental rock post rock especially was blowing up in uh in the late 90s like red sparrows pelican all these kind of acts the mid 2000s mogwai in the in the bent. Yeah, but like I'm just saying, like this is the British <laughs> angle as well. You know, a lot like post rock was massive in in Britain, and that's that. that oh yes, it was both both sides. You know, he has both sides. Yep. He has fucking yep. Nils Fram on this record. He has Nils Fram on this record, <laughs> man. Bro, this is crazy. Uh-huh. This shit is crazy. Then he has like Pitter Patter, which is like this deconstructed, reimagined EDM song. Ashes to Oceans. He said this was the last song he created for the album. Six genres in six minutes, man. That is wild. Um, Ghost yep. Town sounds like a fucking early 2000s Orteca track. It's not straight hip-hop again. This album is not straight hip-hop. And I do wonder no. how Shadow feels when these hip-hop publications come knocking and say, you know, we want to interview because obviously Nobody Speak is is massive. It's a, it's a huge song. Um, <laughs> crazy, man. Crazy album. Great album, I reckon. I love it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I this is power... <sighs> Is it my favorite? Uh, it can, next to next to the private press. I think the private press, in terms of like her, uh, like sh- like essence, shadow essence of just like the exploratory nature. I really enjoyed it. It was very. Uh, it really pushed. It, it like I said, when you get pushed outside your of your comfort zone, like you know, sometimes you can enjoy it. And that was probably the most t- the, the the my most enjoyable time being outside of my uh, outside really outside of my box, right? Man Will Fall is a bit closer, right? It's a bit closer. I can I can live with it. Um, but it's probably my favorite out of the out of the albums, uh, out, of, out of all Shadow albums. It's very concise. You know what I mean? It's like forty nine minutes. So I think the length really really helps here, as to the others that you know, uh, kind of uh, stretch up to around an hour. Um, this one feels much more uh, concise and much more um, decisive. Uh, even with that said, obviously the amount of genre changes in like the space of the forty nine minutes is absolutely crazy. But I think that's part of the fun of the album. To be honest, I really enjoyed that. Uh, uh, it, it, as I, you know, I did. I couldn't relax. You know what I mean? You couldn't relax. You you listen to nobody speak, and you're like, because everyone does it. And then you and then you get a Nils Nils from like two a track later, two tracks later. So you know. You can't relax, and uh, I really love that. I think the Mountain Wolf Falls probably my favorite DJ Shadow track. Actually, pound for pound, 
I, I, that shit just sent me to a fucking stratosphere when I listened to it. I was just like, fuck. <laughs> My head just tipped back. I was like, Ooh. It was so atmospheric. I really love that track. Like, it's actually stupid. Um, I, I, I kind of wish it was longer. It's, it's like over four and a half minutes long. I kind of wish it was longer. Um, but yeah, man, it's a, it's, <clears throat> it's a really amazing album. It's, it's really fascinating to listen to. It really gives you, um, it, it just gives you great tastes of other good of other good things you know what i mean it's 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 a it's a smorgasbord and i really like that essence of it yes yeah, uh, you know we'll, this is the next album is really fascinating man i don't think he's ever done anything like apathetic age i love i'm really interested I, in what you think about this so i only just picked up apathetic apathetic like anyway i i really like that <laughs> i really like that and that really fucking hones in on oh what he's been... get it yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. I like Apathetic. it. Or do you I think like that was? Do you think that was on purpose? I don't know, you, but I feel like yourself? it would be because I just think he puts a lot of time yeah, it, and effort fits. into these things. It fits. Yeah, it fits. So, I set the whole podcast up to come to this record. <laughs> I set the whole podcast up. So, he told a podcast in 2019. He was challenged to make a double album by his manager, who kind of left it hanging, like, "Oh, you couldn't manage this." Now, DJ Shadow easily has a double album in him, and he said this record was genuinely meant to challenge both sides of his audience. Disc one, electronica, pure and simple. Disc two, hip-hop. And he says, My first album was mostly instrumental, but at the same time, through time, I've done a lot of different vocal collaborations as well on my albums of 2006 and 2011. On my last album, I wanted to force people to listen to both sides. And he says, he said to Chase, A lot is going on in this world. As a human being, I feel like I'm sympathetic to the plight of other human beings on this planet. We are in a very surreal and dangerous time, and I can't make a record and not address it. I can't pretend as if everything's okay. And I do want to say that he was called out on the fact that he didn't have any women on this album. And he says, I really wanted a female presence on the record, so I sent beats to five different female artists, but for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. One of them had a really bad throat. Yeah, I know, I know. And, you know, so he he said it's his one regret about the album, that he wanted it to be 50-50 male and female, or at least 25%, and he didn't have anyone. And, you know, I we, you can make up your own mind on that. I don't know. I can't, like, mm. put words in his mouth or, you know, yeah. maybe you could yeah. wait a little while. Maybe you could sure. widen your net a little bit, you know. But, mm. I mean, he got Nas and Farrah Monch on here. Like, come on, man. Like, you can't get it. Anyway, I don't know. But so the se- I mm-hmm. think the second disc is Shadow's best sustained hip-hop production in his entire career. And he had to create <laughs> well, soundscapes. Yeah. He had to create genuine soundscapes for these artists because to get Farrah Monch and Nas on the same song and then to get Ghost Ray and Deck on the same song, like, he slipped his own warmth onto the tracks as well. You know, the track with Dave East? Um, or the, the way he turned, like, a glitch soundscape into a boom-bap beat on Drone Warfare. Uh, the piano sa- sample on Ben Eustar. Uh, the simple groove of Taxon. I think the second disc of this album, probably my favorite of his entire career. Um, it didn't chart on the Billboard 200 at all. So this whole thing, like on an existential level, just looking at his career, I really don't think he was hip-hop. I think he was hip-hop adjacent his whole career. I genuinely, that's the way that I would describe him, hip-hop adjacent. I think he he definitely incorporated elements of hip-hop I certainly think his debut album, I think people might have got confused with the trip-hop thing. You know, trip-hop is not hip-hop. Trip-hop is not rap. It's it's very eclectic. It's very different. 
And I don't know of any American artists who were doing trip hop in the mainstream in the 90s. I would have to look that up. I couldn't find any. So I think maybe there was a bit of a miscommunication because certainly his very next album after his debut was not hip hop at all. Then The Outsider was, again, more hip hop elements, but not, you know, and then the next album after that was not hip hop. And then the next album after that was not hip hop. And this album, and he said in multiple interviews, he really wanted to force out his listeners to listen to both sides. He wanted, he had, he, he recognized that he had fans in these two very discordant camps and he wanted to bring them together and force them to listen to each other. But I think he missed a trick by, you know, he could have sprinkled the songs in rather than having a disc one and a disc two because you could easily just go to whatever disc you prefer. Like, you know, that's a bit silly. Like, I don't think that that's really going to happen. You're not going to be able to force people to listen to music. If you, you know, the stupid way that they do deluxes nowadays, that's when you're trying to force people. So you release an album and then a week later you release a deluxe and you sprinkle the new tracks into the old track list and you don't know what's new and what's old. And then that's when you're really forcing people to listen to your new stuff. But I don't know that he was (laughs) able to force anyone with this record, but I do find it very fascinating that, um, he had he always had this ability. He always had this hip hop ability to do an album like this and he never did it. And you know, it took till 2019 to do it. And um I, I think that his I think it sits uh uncomfortably within him. You know, when I watch interviews, I think he loves hip hop deeply and you know, he feels like that was his his biggest influence and he grew up on hip hop. Um but I really don't think he was considered hip hop, and basically until RTJ, nobody speak. I really don't think he was like really getting picked up by hip hop outlets until then, because all the interviews I read mm. prior were not from Complex. They weren't from Double XL. They weren't from Vibe. They weren't from you know all these. They, they were from like Pop Matters or Quietus or Enemy or Q or Rolling Stone. So, and and the other side of it is you know if we're t- if I'm finishing on this, which I will. His sampling, and I know that we've we haven't spoken much about his sampling, but I think this is also a link that ties him directly to hip hop. Is he's one of the best sample artists of all time, genuinely. And again, we think of sampling through the specter of hip hop, but there's so much other music out there with sampling. If we talk about the plunderphonics genre, and we talk about artists like the Avalanches, again, the Avalanches are very very similar, I think, to DJ Shadow in that they sit hip hop adjacent. They have hip hop artists. You could even say Gorillaz is in that realm. I know that they don't sample, and Damien Albarn doesn't sample, but like they're hip hop adjacent, right? Gorillaz are hip hop adjacent, point. and I think DJ Shadow is in the exact same lane as those artists. Uh, and I don't think it was a lane of his own choosing. I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just how it, how it's transpired. Yeah, I feel like uh, I keep I keep thinking uh, if we're doing someone like DJ Shadow, could we easily do someone like Gorillaz? Like what's the? Because when you get to those kind of people, it it gets to a point where you're just like, hmm, mm-hmm. you you just uh, are we are we sticking our necks out too much, right? Um, as it pertains to this album, uh, I I did listen to it when it dropped and uh, didn't really enjoy it. Um, but I feel with my newfound uh, you know, listening of uh Shadows uh prior discography, uh, I understand more. Um, there are. Uh, I, I feel like the instrumental suite is purposefully put first. I feel. I feel like kind of. Uh, I, I would like. I, I'm gonna say this. I'm. I think. Uh, if. Uh, <coughs> if he put. If he put the hip hop. Uh, what well, the vocal suite that he calls it. 
um, if you put that first, I feel like most uh, a lot of people, uh, well, again, depending on who you, who you, what you're there for, um, I think uh, you know, maybe maybe some people uh, listen to the first bit and then uh, skip the second bit entirely. Who knows? Um, but I feel like for hip hop people, they probably you know go for the features and then because bro, imagine if Nature Always Wins was like the first track on part. Uh, if if that was like the first track on a part two. And you're the hip hop person listening to this, and you're just like, oh yeah, 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 oh fucking hell, that uh, that 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 Nas, that Davies, that uh, fucking Inspector Desk, uh, Inspector Deck, uh, Ghostface, Raekwon track, oh De La Soul, Rocket Fuel, banger, 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 right? And then you have like the Nature's Wind was just like, <laughs> fucking <hell>, what? <laughs> it's so apocalyptic. Um, I will say. <clears throat> particular tracks like Rosie I really enjoyed Rosie um uh Beauty Power Motion Life Work Chaos Law Firestorm uh I really enjoyed uh so there there are some good tracks in the instrumental suite that I kind of that I don't think I really enjoyed before but I feel like uh with you know as 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 people grow people learn and that's what we do here on Digging Digits uh I feel like I've gained uh, you know a newfound uh, respect for the instrumental suite um I still prefer the vocal suite. With that said, <laughs> um, but even with that, actually, uh, some of these, some of these, I'm not really that into as pertain as a certain tracks. Um, I say, I actually, I, I think honestly, I prefer like uh, I feel, I feel like the whole album's fifty fifty for me, um, but not in the way you think, where I like you know prefer the whole of the vocal suite and none of the instrumental suite. I just prefer elements of both. I feel like if um if if you if you got me to um if you got me to take this album apart and put it in half and and cut it in half uh i would put both i put both suites in uh represent somewhere um i'd probably have like you know drone warfare rain on snow rocket fuel uh kings and queens uh taxing uh probably that's it for me and then like rosie uh, the other tracks I mentioned, I think that's a good mix. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't know how it'd work. Maybe I should playlist it just for, <laughs> just for, just for test. But you know, I, I would, I like. Uh, it's a very fifty-fifty album for me, but not in the way you think. And that's uh, kind of interesting. And kind of is what DJ Shadow is in a lot of ways. Where like you listen to some things and you like it, and you listen to some things and you don't. And I feel like that risk taking. But he may not even consider it risk-taking. He may consider it as just, like, you know, what he likes and what he enjoys doing. And obviously, being the sample god that he is, um, it is, it, you know... <laughs> you know th bro, there's some Mad Lib samples that, I, that you know, Sound Ancestors uh, uh, as an album, as I referenced previously, um, it was it was cool. It's not my favourite Mad Lib album, but it was cool. Like, it was clear that he just, he spanned the globe with that shit, you know what I mean? And that's what's interesting about it. And it's the same when it comes to Shadow, where he, you know, just he, sometimes he just goes in the most deepest depths of what out of what um uh, of what sampling is and uh, where he goes for them. Um, it's never, it's barely traditional in in you know the, in that sense of what you consider traditional. Excuse me, traditional sampling. Um, but yeah, it's just um, it's re it's it's eclectic. It's eclectic. In one word, Shadow is very eclectic. And uh, uh, he may not consider himself that, um, but I do. Um, but that's kind of why I enjoy it in a lot of ways. Um, but some people, you know, a lot of us need some eclecticism in our lives. 
and uh, I feel I feel like Shadow is a really good vessel for that if you guys ever want to get into that kind of thing. Um, I feel like this is again as I started with it as I started saying it's a great place to begin with introducing and whatever. I feel like DJ Shadow is an artist is very fascinating, and uh, in hindsight, I'm glad we did this episode. Um, it was very, it scared the shit out of me as soon as Ben picked it out of the many others that I was comfortable with. He was like, "Let's do Shadow first. I'm like, "Fuck!" <laughs> but you know, it is what it is, and uh, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad we did it. Yeah, I think there was. I just thought there was a narrative there that I didn't know yet. You know, and the other the other artists, of course, there's going to be uh, narratives and there's going to be like you know stories that come out. But yeah, I had yeah. never listened to anything except introducing, and I was just mad curious to see. Like it's it's like what we did with the you know like Farside for example all those artists from those times Das Effects it's like what happened what happened like I don't understand and I think this one was um yeah I was just mad curious I think we were very close to being off piste in this episode very close to being off piste I think maybe gorillas we might be <laughs> we might be you know like yeah it was just. But I, yeah, I found it fascinating. I know Brandon would fucking cream if we did it. So if we did gorillas, yeah, he'd cream, I mean, bro. He'd die and go to heaven. He'd probably, gorilla. he'd probably want to be on the episodes. I'll probably let him do that. Gorillas is amazing, but like that might be. I, I don't love, know. We'll oh, see. Yeah, but how, how can you not love gorillas? Yeah, great. Yeah, we'll but yeah, see. maybe one day. Maybe uh, let us know, guys. Let, honestly, let us know. Honestly, because like, if um, it it may not fit. You know, obviously it's not. They're not. They're not the gorillas is not hip hop by any means. It's from the dude who made fucking Blur, bro. Like, by the way, so you know, it's clearly, it's clearly not. But he has a lot of people, you know. They'll hunt fucking over Sapien, obviously Clint Eastwood, for example, and a lot of people throughout the throughout the years. And uh, not to make it a grillish retrospective, but you know, he has kind of widened his net on features uh, recently, and I really respect that. Um, but anyway, we shall leave it there. Fucking hell, with this was a long one, and uh, we can get into a lighter note. Um, I feel I feel like because we're dropping like four days after the recording, I feel like saying stuff that's just happened is a bit, bit pointless. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know whether to even bother. Um, but uh, as a, as one night note that I feel like is universal, um, in light of the many of the of the leaked uh, Kanye engineer text of especially that one where like the guy was like, "Hey guys, did thirty three hours on Pro Tools, nearly died, but I'm good to go now." Um, guys, don't kill yourself for this shit, or for anything. Um, <clears throat> it kind of uh, comes back to that, uh, you know, just uh, the capitalist element of just like you know you need to get it done, and that's not what it is. Um, it kind of it harks back to uh what I just talked about literally on what's goods re- on late latest episode talking about the death of Michael K Williams, and how he he was one of those actors that really put his all into into his art and um you know uh, still i don't as of this recording still don't know the cause of his death but you know it really it really is sobering thinking about that kind of thing that people some people kill themselves uh for the art in some ways not obviously literally but in terms of like deteriorating health you know what I mean? I'm not doing... I'm not I'm not writing for 33 hours. I don't need to write th- for 33 hours straight. You know what I mean? There's no need for that. Um, rest is important on that front. And I really feel that way. Um, so, you know, people were saying... What was that? What was that? What was the term on one of the posts? Forced labor? Forced labor from... Uh, it was... Scissor reposted it, but someone labor. else posted it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Guys, 
That's not it. What, what is what what is that? What is the what is that? What does that mix into? That's you know what it. I mean? Yeah, it's getting that's, that's big slavery vibes right there. You know what I mean? So that's not that's not what anyone wants. Okay, that's not what anyone wants. I don't care how good the art is. You shouldn't be killing yourself for it. I that's what I feel. But then again, uh, there's a difference, right? I feel like if you if you're putting pain right into your art, that's that's different. But just deteriorating your health over it is a whole different ball game. And I think I think people in as not even regardless if they're artists or not, I feel like a lot of people really get those lines misconstrued, and uh, there's a difference. You know, putting pain into your art is can be therapy for some people, um, but it can also kill a lot of people. Um, so you know, it's a very dangerous thing. But the 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 just the the grind culture. Ugh, that that shit does not sit well with me at all in general. I hope that go- I hope that dude who nearly fucking died from the sounds of it doing Pro Tools. Like no, I hope he gets I hope he gets the resting knees because Jesus Christ. I remember when I was uh, and I have a little bit to say about this when I was in uh, university and I was one of my friends was uh, he was working in finance and he was studying to get his I think MBA or something at the same time. And he was pulling like 16-hour days, right? And I hung out with him and his friends a few times. And they were all pulling 16-hour days, six days a week, 16-hour days whilst going to uni. They would do all their uni work on the Sunday. And he burnt out. He burnt out and he dropped out of his job. He got he got made redundant in like 2014 or something. I remember going to his house one day. I hadn't seen him in six months, six months after he'd lost his job. And he was lying in bed just inert. He was just unable to do anything or move. And I'd known this guy for, what, 10 years. I'd never, ever seen him like this in my life. And this is the culture in these kind of industries. And it's not limited to creative work. It's not limited to art. This is just, if, if you've never been out there in, in these, these circumstances, this is a regular, constant thing. Like lawyers are like this in law firms. And the problem is, as people have been saying, you know, this person didn't have to do this if they didn't want to. They could go get another job and do something else. And yeah, they could do that. And then someone, some poor soul will like pop up and do the job. And that's the whole problem. That's the whole thing that propagates this shit is, yeah, someone else is willing to do it. Someone else is willing to get paid $100,000 to do this. Or they're just willing to get their name on the credits of a Kanye West record because they think that's going to open a bunch of doors for them. It's the same with you know the, the lawyers that I speak to who worked stupid hours, stupid hours for so many years because if they didn't, they would have lost their job. And they're like, it's it's not necessarily they're doing it for the project or they're doing it for the moment or they're doing it for, we want to get this thing done. They're doing it for the future. They're like, hopefully at some point in the future, I won't be able to work this, won't have to work this hard anymore because I've worked this hard already. And it's this gamble that you're doing where you might burn yourself out and you'll never get to that future, whether you know you might tragically pass away or you might just burn out and then have to do something completely menial. My friend who was doing that, he now works as a, a stock a shelf stocker at Woolworths and he's happier than he's ever been. Because he didn't have to, he was earning like hundreds of thousand dollars a year. Now he's earning probably like forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. But he's so happy because he doesn't have to fucking kill himself. And I've noticed this, and and I say kill himself in regards to, as Charlie said, not actually physically do it, but like just, just really hurt your health, really hurt your health. And I've noticed that when I take on um, 
when I take on projects. For example, the the Kid Cudi uh, humming project. You know, I worked ridiculous hours to get that done in the time frame I was given. And I knew that I had to do that because if I said I couldn't do that, they'd be like, oh, well, don't worry about it. We'll just, we won't do this. Or, you know, the recent, I di- recently did a project for a record label and it was six days I was given to do it. And there was no way like I could work eight hour days and get this done in six days. I had to really hammer myself. I had to pull 10, 12 hour days for those six days to get this project done. And I knew if I didn't say yes to it, then they would get someone else to do it or it would just not get done and I wouldn't get paid and I wouldn't get that look. I wouldn't get that on my resume. And this is the problem I have a lot of the time with this capitalist fucking world that we live in. It's like, it's it's exploitative. It's so exploitative. And I'm saying all this to Talk say this is not... It. This is not limited to to Kanye West. This is not limited to art. And I don't think you need to do this to create great art. And as Fantano said on his channel, he's like, who's doing their best work in the 30-second straight hour of something? (laughs) What? Bro, have you ever tried to work 32, 33 hours? This guy almost, he he passed out in the studio and had to be taken to hospital (laughs) with an ambulance. Do you really think that in the 30-second hour on Pro Tools, he was giving his all? Like, come on, man. Don't give me that shit. That's ridiculous. Unless you're taking, like, some incredible amount of, like, ice or methamphetamine or something. You are not. (laughs) And even then, you really think you're going to be given your your most accurate, incisive work? So it's just it's a, it's bullshit, and all these these people online saying, well, you know, he knew the landscape when he went into that work, or that's what you need to do to create. No, you don't. You don't. It's when you get locked into silly, silly deadlines, and you're getting like dragged into the studio at all hours. It's ridiculous, and I just think it's silly. I think anyone who's like, uh, and I don't, I, you know, I do have experience. I'm not in this level. Not I'm not never worked for Kanye. But I've worked in marketing firms. I've seen my friends go through this. I've seen lawyers go. I see it. I know it's a regular thing. I have best friends who have done this shit. Not 33 hours. That's fucking crazy. But I'm in like, you know, 16 to 20 hour days regularly during the week. I've seen that happen and it never, ever works well. It's always fucking toxic for someone's health. I don't think it's, I think it's silly. I think it's really silly. The whole thing is just silly. Do you want to work for Kanye? Man, there's no way I'm working for Kanye if those are the terms. Yeah, good, because you have to find God. Leave yeah, and find God. Ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there. Follow on the Fifth Home Podcast Network. It's been Digger Digits. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I have a child to the Fifth Home. Don't do it. Don't do it. Space, in that space of silence, I was like... You know. He's putting his sign up. He knows. He's putting his sign up. I just, I honestly thought it was top of the morning. So, you know what? That was refreshing. Thank you. Um, we're, d- we're doing Red Man next week. Uh, that's, that's cool. Fun. I'm so excited on that. I'm really so, curious. So, yeah, I'm, I'm here for the, epic. I'm here for just the aggressive bars. I'm just here oh, for yeah. it. Um, and, uh, yeah, where was I? Uh, hope you all have a good week. Wish I was trying to do the same. Don't kill yourself. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, peace. Digging in the Digits is produced by me and Ben Carter. The show was led by me. Music for the show is a piece of video games by bonus points. Thanks to Joel Preckers for the to use. Socials for the fifth element hip hop by numbers, bonus points, and chill records will be the full show notes for every listening. This has been a fifth element podcast little production. Thanks for spending time with us. Wish to see you next time when we get dirty or digging digits.